This is a Wild Gate Production Podcast. everybody welcome to save or die side adventure number 14 and i am joined today by chris holmes hi carl today we are going to be talking about house rules yes something we both believe in yes things uh taking the game and making it your own both big believer in that uh first uh chris i want to tell a story real quick about uh north texas rpg con 2017 and this is where i met you and I, uh, I was going to run Holmes Basic D&D, and I, I had signed up to run basic, uh, uh, Holmes Basic D&D, and um, Mike and Liz Stewart both signed up for my game, and I had this moment of panic of, oh no, <laughs> because I was sure that they knew the rules frontwards and backwards, and they knew the rules so much better than me. Um, it, it was my first time actually running Holmes Basic, and uh, I was wrong. They didn't. I mean, they didn't know the rules frontwards <laughs> and backwards. They weren't. They weren't uh, encyclopedias of knowledge of Holmes Basic. I mean, they knew the rules, but it wasn't anything uh, supernatural. <laughs> but then you sat down at my table, and then I was like, "Oh no, this person definitely knows <laughs> the rules frontwards and backwards." Uh, and no, well, you I didn't, didn't either. either. You didn't either. <laughs> but right. North Texas 2018. I ran Holmes Basic again, and uh, Zach from the Xenopus Archives played in my game, and he definitely knows the rules, (laughs) (laughs) frontwards and backwards, (laughs) 100% without fail or error. Uh, So I got to have that experience at least once where somebody at my table really knew what was going on. Did he correct you a lot? Not a lot. (laughs) Not a lot. He's very nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like Zach a lot. As our... As are Mike and Liz. Absolutely. <laughs> so we're going to talk today about house rules. What about house rules do you want to talk about? Well, when you were running that game, I think you asked me, uh, this is how I'm, I do this. I don't know how your dad did it. Or whatever. And I said, I, I can't remember how my dad did this particular thing. So go ahead and do whatever you want. <laughs> That's what dad would do. You had a rule about uh, retrieving our arrows and finding out whether they were broken or not. And uh, I thought that was a great idea. Well, I think, um, you know, retrieving arrows is something that uh, should be possible, but it, it shouldn't have a 100% success rate. And that's actually something that came from when we were growing up. My my mom and dad ran D&D games for us, mostly my mom. Uh, my dad just really preferred to play. Uh, that was her rule that you would retrieve arrows. And I think she gave us a percentage chance. And, and, and I mean, I guess a D6 roll is still in a, in, a, in a sense a percentage chance. But I think I remember rolling actual percentile dice to retrieve arrows. And there was like a, a possibly even like if we shot um, five arrows, we rolled a percentile dice. And if we rolled um, 80% on our percentile dice, we got four arrows back. 
so she would make us adjust. So I was homeschooled. My parents yeah. used Dungeons and Dragons. Way to be homeschooled. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my parents used Dungeons and Dragons as an educational tool, no doubt about it. Um, so that may be why she even created that house rule is just so we'd have to like convert <laughs> over our, our one number to our percentile number and think about the numbers in that abstract way. That's wonderful. I'm a, a terrible at almost every kind of math, except I'm really good at adding up uh, three six-sided dice together quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an idiot savant. That's, that's a math drill. Uh, that you've done over and over again <laughs> right <laughs> but i always enjoyed it so <laughs> right it didn't feel like a didn't feel like work so my dad's uh one house rule that i recall uh clearly is the the rule that if you're killed and your characters died they get one extra blow before they get they they're dead the dying blow rule which makes no realistic sense at all but it makes uh, it feels more satisfying when you're sad about your character, and it uh, sort of has a kind of pulpy heroic flavor to it, and that's uh, what makes it uh, to me a good house rule because it seems it seems right to uh, let the poor guy whose character's just been killed have one extra chance to uh, to get revenge. We've it just... never actually worked. <laughs> They always missed, it seemed like. That was a nice thought. <laughs> I think there's a um, something to, to that, these two house rules we have. Um, so one of these house rules, you should be able to gather arrows, but not all of them should be always in pristine condition or usable again. That's based in this realism idea. And the other house rule, the dying blow house rule, that's based in a narrative idea, right? So... Yeah. We have these kind of two paths to go down when we create house rules on whether or not we're trying to engage in realism or we're trying to engage in a narrative concept. And yeah. I I think both are extremely valid for a game of Dungeons and Dragons because I think it's a little bit of both of those. Uh, you know, there's this kind of uh, idea of an in-game physics that sort of isn't really real life physics but it's it's a um it's an emulation of real life physics you know there's also just the fact that the game of dungeons and dragons is designed to create a narrative flow to some extent um whether uh, or not you play heavy into the story of the game or you're playing it mostly as a simulationist the game still has a narrative the thing about combat is it is it's what we often argue about because some people have an idea that it should be such and such a way because that's how it feels like it's real to them and then other people think no we should you know abstract it and make it easy and get on to the story but there's certain things about combat that we sometimes uh i don't know if we fetishize but we we enjoy them a lot, and we don't want to move on. We we enjoy archery. We enjoy sword play. So we we I want to have the sword that I choose be important, or the mace, or the battle axe, or whatever. So I've always been so, somewhat annoyed that it didn't matter which weapon I was using in in classic D and D. So for... have some house rules for swords versus versus maces and warhammers and axes. Let's start with the 
dagger getting a, an extra blow, which is something that uh, Dad put into Home's Basic. And that always seemed reasonable. But we were actually playing with variable damage, even though that didn't make it into the rules. So it, with uh, what we played basically was the arrows and daggers did a four-sided die of damage. Almost all the other weapons did a six-sided die of damage. And two-handed weapons did two six-sided dice of damage. And that felt right for us. Um, and I'm sorry, he didn't, uh, he didn't want to upset TSR <laughs> by <laughs> putting that rule in, but I think they would probably would have accepted it. So it, it ended up getting in uh, Mulvey and Cook, I guess, right? Or Menser. Well, variable weapon damage um, it, throughout classic D&D was an optional rule until the 1991 rule cyclopedia. It was put in there um, in, in, even in the Moldvay basic book. You didn't have to get the expert book to find it. It was right there in the book, but um, it was translated from the variable weapon damage from the first supplement, Greyhawk. Um, yeah. So it um, I actually like your dad's rule better because I like the idea of um, great weapons being uh, that much more powerful than um, regular weapons doing a whole other die of damage uh, as opposed to in the um, in the Greyhawk supplement they do a d10 of damage. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that seems fine too. Either way. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, neither neither uh, will make or break the game, and that's another thing uh, we kind of fiddle with the rules a lot um, and think about these concepts over and over again and turn them over in our mind. But it doesn't really affect the fun of the game. So when any time you sit down to someone's game and they give you their house rules, I think the thing to do is to say, "Awesome, that's what we're playing with," because my dad always says. My favorite version of Dungeons and Dragons is the version where you don't argue about the rules all the time. <laughs> yeah. which, which is his nice way of saying, sit down and play. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wise words. Yeah. <laughs> so probably the most often used house rules across the board uh, is critical hits and critical fumbles. Uh, th- that's not in the rules of any old school D&D system that I ever saw I think in one point in um, Mincer it says that a 20 always hits a 1 always misses but that's it there's no um, there's no additional benefit or negative you get for those roles and I, I remember growing up always having uh, additional damage or additional penalties for 20s and 1s um, it's just something that just leaked into the game for us, and I feel like that probably is true for many people who uh, who played D and D growing up. Yeah, and it, that's not a realism rule, but it's it could be sold that way. But it, I think what it is is a fun rule, and what it what it does is it makes the stakes higher in combat, and you might even if you're fighting. Uh, um, a monster who's much more powerful than you if you if you get a critical hit if you roll a 19 or 20 and you can do double damage on him then you know you may survive the encounter so it makes things uh to me it makes things more heroic and uh the way i roll uh use a fumble rule is if you roll a one or a two you drop 
your sword or your weapon and then you're either without a weapon you have to pick it up and lose a lose a blow or you pull out your dagger and then you suddenly have a reason for having brought that dagger I think it's really interesting that you uh, go one and two and 19 and 20. You you offer that 10% chance of critical success and failure. I think there's, just because you you spend the whole game rolling dice, I think there's a little bit of a um, natural celebration. There's something just about our makeup that when we're rolling that 20-sided die, when we roll that 20, we want a prize. Like, we we, we did the best. <laughs> yes. I get something now, right? <laughs> yeah, I, and I think we all deserve a prize. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I so think... Let's call it double damage. <laughs> <laughs> now, the thing is, if the monsters get critical hits and the heroes get critical hits, the rule is actually worse for the players uh, because they're almost always outnumbered. <laughs> what I would do is monsters cannot fumble because they're not carrying weapons generally we're talking about carrying crawlers and and things like that uh so they can't fumble so they can't critical hit and then you're uh, not being killed quite so easily (laughs) i was kind of thinking a monster doesn't critical hit the same way that maybe a fighter does because of just the skill in combat um, you know, do you assume the cobalt with the club is as good a fighter as your hero that you're controlling? Or should they have different rules for critical hits? Is it possible that a monster rolls a 20 and gets plus one to damage, where your uh, heroic fighter gets double damage? That, yeah, you could do it that way. I like to think of all my house rules as being things that I can carry in my head and that I don't have to have a table to consult. The warlock rules that we were influenced by early on always had an extra table that you had to go look things up on. And uh, that's to me, slowed things down. And I, I feel like uh, that was one of their great weaknesses was extra tables. So that's why I don't have another separate rule for monsters. <laughs> No, I, I I agree that that looking up stuff in the in the rules is is the uh, worst use of your time <laughs> at the game table. I would rather just make something up on the fly and just move forward and not worry about what it actually says, the letter of the law, which I think is where some house rules probably come from. Is uh, something happens in the game, people are unclear of how it exactly should uh, map out mechanically, so they make something up. And then later they go to the rule book and look it up and they go, well, we like what we made up better. <laughs> Let's go with that. Or, or the thing they're looking up doesn't exist at all in the rules. That's true as well. That can happen quite a bit. <laughs> so uh, while we're talking about combat, um, I have a couple ideas about parrying. Uh, I know in uh, Holmes Basic, you get a, you subtract two from your opponent's chance to hit you with your opt for parrying and I was thinking that perhaps the sword is a better weapon for parrying than the battle axe the mace, certainly the flail and uh, <laughs> I'd like to give the sword a little edge there if you don't mind me saying that and oh say, my goodness I don't know sorry. if that was intentional <laughs> I hope that was intentional <laughs> <laughs> no it just came out Okay, good. <laughs> either way <laughs> you want me to say it, take it over again? <laughs> no, 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 not at all 
All right. Only if you do right. the exact same thing, but go edge. <laughs> <laughs> really lean into it. <laughs> I, no, I refuse. Okay, that's fine. You can use it. Cut it out. <laughs> so where, where was I? So uh, I'm going to give the sword a plus three to parry. And what I'm going to do to make you think, well, he just loves swords. He's not going to let us use these other cool weapons. I'm also going to tell you that if you fumble the sword, your sword may break. But that's not going to happen with an axe or a mace, certainly. Hmm. So um, I'm going to say one to six chance you break your sword if you fumble. What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> I think... I, now, so here's the realism side of me instead of the narrative side. I think an axe is much more likely to break than a sword is. I actually like outside of damage mechanics being different by the different weapons because that's something that you can that's not set as a hard like this is definitely better and this is definitely worse so if you're able to parry easier with a um, sword but maybe um, flails ignore shields you know uh, there's this kind of it's not an apples to apples things where a D eight's clearly just better than a D six. Yes, it is. Parrying isn't clearly better than ignoring shields. You know, it's it's not a it's not a um, as contrasted a as a decision. I also think a an axe or a mace might give you a bonus to breaking down doors. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. An axe is a more versatile tool actually than a sword. Right. So there's a certain. Um, uh, kind of personality to the weapon and the weapon user, which I don't think, yeah. All right. I like that idea, though, of, of of the benefit of the type of weapon you use being in the background. I think one idea about parrying, especially if you're using two weapons, if you're parrying with one and you kind of sacrifice your attack to parry, if I remember correctly. You sacrifice it entirely in the rules, yeah. Yeah. So what if the rule was you can sacrifice your attack while parrying? But if the attacker misses you, you then get to take that attack, maybe at a minus. Right, because your weapon's free. Sounds very swashbuckly. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea of, like, I choose to parry, so I get an armor class bonus. Well, they whiffed Pasha, they missed. And now I get this extra attack, uh, but at a minus. So I'm I'm, I'm adding, essentially adding the, um, well, you know, I, I think I'm saying that wrong. I think if they hit you, you should get the attack, not if they miss you. Because if they oh, miss okay. you, the uh, the assumption is you've parried, right? You block their sword with your weapon, so it's That's engaged. Right. But if they hit you, then you still have that sword, and you just go, okay, stab time, uh, <laughs> uh, stab o'clock, as I like to call it. Uh, You're gonna have to think about that one a little because it's gonna perhaps <laughs> turn into a rule where everyone's always going to want to parry. Right, the penalty is exactly right. The penalty has to be severe enough to not make that mechanically beneficial, you know, on all accounts. But you only get to attack if you get hit. So I mean, you have to you have to you have to be like, okay, I hope he hits me, <laughs> so I get an attack roll at a negative, and then possibly miss entirely. Okay, yeah, I'm starting to. You're selling me on it. <laughs> I'm sure um, functionally it would be terrible. It would be a lot of. <laughs> did I did I hit? Did I choose to parry? Did I roll? Did I attack? Did he miss? <laughs> well, 
Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Great! Why not head over to patreon.com slash WGP and support that show for as little as dollar a month. Dollar a month goes a long way to helping support the network Wild Games Productions. Again, that's patreon.com slash WGP. Thank you. There's something that thieves uh, and assassins in Pulp Fiction do sometimes, which I've always wanted to be able to do in the game, and that they sneak up on someone and then they hold their dagger to their throat and get them to confess or give them a key or whatever, but they don't actually kill them. And I always wondered if there could be a rule for that. Yeah, like uh, kind of the the issue with... um the way D&D combat is structured is is if you sneak up on this uh, ninth level lord with your thief and you hold a dagger to his throat and he was like, well, you're going to have to stab me 87 times to eventually <laughs> yeah. get through all my hit points. There's no there's no concept of like uh, imminent danger when you're uh, uh, a higher level um, warrior or really any character because you know what your hit points, you know what your stake in the uh, a game is and how how much you can survive so i think almost like all of that can be handled with role play and the move silently rules and all the rules as written except for the actual threat of the knife to the throat which in D D isn't really that big a threat <laughs> unless yeah. you unless you include some sort of coup de gras rule where uh the thief under the right circumstances can do a killing blow regardless of the hit points of the character they're fighting. I have, I've heard of a, uh, a guy who was running a, with a group of younger players. A, he didn't want to kill them off in their first game. So he allowed them to administer first aid for mm-hmm. like one or two hit points mm-hmm. uh, from a character who's not a cleric. How do you feel about that one? Well, I mean, I think especially when it's people's first experience, you know, you definitely don't want to just like, okay, you're you're all dead. Haha, that's the game. Then <laughs> welcome to my hobby <laughs> where I kill you all. <laughs> so I and, I and I think also playing with children. I, I mean, I run games for children a lot. I run games for my kids and I run games for kids within the community. I, I a lot of time I ran um, a kids game at SpaCon. Um, and I think a lot of times you you do allow some leniency in those types of situations, whether they're just very brand new to the game or uh, being children. I think the idea of, of kind of a administered healing, you know, somebody who, who's not a cleric, it's not magical, but they, they can bandage your doctor up in some way, shape or form. I think that's a fine idea. I don't think it's any different really than a really cheap, less effective healing potion. Um, so how about this as far as house rules? generating a character do you uh, is there any house rules in that process that you like mm. that's a thing that gets house ruled quite a bit whether it's you roll 46 and drop the lowest or you give the character yeah. max hit points at first level are there any of those yeah. that you lean towards uh, yeah the rolling one on your hit point die is, is all, all, almost the one where you go oh that's just too ha- too sad <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's let you re-roll one of your rolls how's that for a house rule I think I've employed that one before yeah I could see allowing a character um, I, I would re-roll probably ones and twos uh, especially if it's a, um, a fighting class 
you know, you, if you have a first level fighter with one hit point, that's that's pretty rough. There's no chance of success. Yeah. <laughs> why, why bother buying them all that equipment? They're just gonna <laughs> die. <laughs> I just. I, Another one I do is I don't have them uh, roll to see if they know the spell. I just let them choose their spell. Yeah, that's definitely one that I, I'm in favor of. I actually prefer them to have maybe a, a spell book of about three spells at first level. So they have some of that. They get a, a taste of the class of like, you get to pick this spell this day or this spell that day. You get an idea of, I am a character with more powers. I enjoy the problem-solving aspect of the game probably more than any other aspect of the game. So I like giving those different solutions to problems. It's always interesting to have a first-level wizard in your party. He's a low-level magic user, ready to go, and he has sleep and magic missile and ventriloquism, and he gets in a situation where ventriloquism is the right answer. You know... (laughs) Sleep. I have yet to see that one. <laughs> you know, ventriloquism is what avoids the combat entirely. Convinces the Minotaur to go to the other side of the hall <laughs> so you can just sneak past him. Um, I'd love to see that. I, uh, <laughs> I've never... Uh, <laughs> I think I had a character with ventriloquism and I never used it. But... <laughs> Gandalf used it once, so it must be great at some point. Yeah, if you're if you're uh, if you got stone trolls, you need some ventriloquism. But when do you ever really need to detect alignment? I w- so here's a house rule. Uh, that's a pretty big shift. I don't use alignment. I don't care to have alignment in my game at all. Yay! <laughs> high, high five. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter to me I at all. Yeah. It's all coming out now. <laughs> Here's the real dirty laundry. <laughs> Just play your character how you want to. Why worry about all that stuff? Well, I think what happens is um, anybody who's played D&D enough knows that you really get a sense of who the characters are. And this, ab- this, this alignment axis that you... Uh, decide to hew to or not is is less solidified once you realize who exactly that character is once you play a character enough you don't think of them in terms of uh oh they act chaotically or oh they act lawfully or they act evil or they act good you're you think of them in terms of like oh man that is that is what rorik would do in this situation this is how rorik acts and how he talks and and uh, his demeanor and his actions and his motivations, you really do delve into these characters so much that the alignment system really stops mattering at some point. And I've been at tables where the characters were defined enough to where I didn't really, I don't think I could tell you what any of their alignments were, but I knew how all of them acted. Although we don't like alignment, I do feel that paladins and clerics should have rules uh that sort of define them to some extent. That there should be a price to pay with the way you behave if you're supposed to be a, a holier-than-thou type of character. You, you do need to act accordingly. Yeah, I like the idea of um, the cleric and, and the paladin have this kind of set of rules set forth for them. I don't think you need alignment to enforce that. 
I think everybody knows what those rules are. <laughs> yeah, just, they yeah, you just kind of know. <laughs> it's basically the the law. <laughs> and if you don't, the God can come down and, and explain things to them. I like the idea that a cleric and a paladin can lose their powers, but also a cleric and a paladin can gain them back through some sort of act of piety some sort of task but if you allow that to morph into this narrative of redemption that could be a really interesting gaming experience that you would have just missed out on if you're like okay we'll scrap the character i'm rolling up a new one i think maybe uh, i don't know if it was arnson or gygax who was very influenced by three hearts and three lions and there's stuff in that book about the forces of chaos and the sort of aligning yourself with either law or chaos that appeal to them in mm -hmm. sort of so that perhaps in the world of Greyhawk or whatever something like that was you know an important kind of uh, narrative thing yeah I think work. I think when we think of alignments as personality type as kind of your uh, what is that test the IBJF test or whatever uh, uh, it seems to be completely useless I mean, it seems completely useless to me. Um, but when you think of it as these cosmic powers, like in Moorcock or in uh, uh, Three Hearts and Three Lions, uh, if it's this cosmic power that you're kind of um, staking your claim into, and it's not your personality, it's not your, your character is interested in advancing the cosmic power of law, regardless of who they are as a person. I think that could be very interesting. Um, but that's... That's certainly not the way pe most people perceive alignment. And for most D&D players, the major motivation, at least at the start, is to make money. And these other these deities or these powers yeah. of chaos or evil are really not you know, part of the game unless... Everybody's chaotic money. greedy. <laughs> That's a good alignment. <laughs> chaotic greedy. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we've established one thing for sure. We don't like alignment. No, <laughs> we, not, not even kind of. <laughs> put it in the bag with psionics and throw it, in the, throw it down the well. <laughs> uh, I agree with you there as well. So you're uh, uh, a bit of a rules tinkerer, and so am I. And I think we're always, uh, I think part of that is just looking for this balance of realism and narrative purpose. And I think when you roll all those up, what you're really looking for when you create a house rule is fun. Yeah, it should be fun and it should... It should probably be easy to sell to your players. You know, I would say if I had an idea for a rule and all of my players didn't like it, I, would, I wouldn't force it on them. But generally, like with your arrow rule, I immediately adopted it without an argument because it made sense to me and it seemed fine. That's how you should test your house rules. Test them on your players. <laughs> I think there needs to be a little bit of an um, attitude of experimentation when 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 uh, uh you play games like this because i don't think things are fully defined in dungeons and dragons I, and i don't think they should be uh and i think uh, there has to be an attitude among your table of like let's see what happens let's fill this out let's roll this die and come up with a result that if everything's hard coded it robs you of that element of the experience where you're you're figuring out together what the implications of this action is yeah 
yeah, that's cool. So I guess very silly. In summary, our suggestions is experiment with the game, uh, let your players know your house rules, and um, don't be afraid to take from other systems and just pull it into your game. And ignore rules that you don't like. <laughs> yes, like alignment. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, everybody, thank you for listening to uh, Save or Die Side Adventure 14. This is the 14th side adventure. We did one of these recently. We'll do more in the future. And uh, thank you so much for listening. If you like these side adventures, uh, let us know at questions at saveordie.info. If you don't like these uh, side adventures and uh, just want full shows, let us know that too. That's fine. Uh, we'll accept all feedback. <laughs> and and thank you... Thank you so much, Chris, for uh, joining me tonight and talking house rules, and uh, we hope to have you back sometime. Great. That was fun. For those of you uh, listening, um, uh, don't forget to uh, uh, jump on to our Discord. Speaking of house rules, on our Discord, we've been having a lot of discussion uh, about using... Uh, well, I guess this is almost not a house rule. This is a, the original rule. We're, we're, we're a lot of discussion about using Chainmail combat system for OD&D. Uh, as opposed to using the alternate combat system, uh, as as seen in the uh, uh, the early D and D books, based off the D twenty. So um, Zylarthin, I believe I'm saying that right, has jumped into our Discord and given us a lot of information about that. It's been really informative and interesting to look at those discussions. But no, no one's ever going to give up their twenty sided dice. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my theory too. Uh, we we talked a little bit about it on uh, the last uh, Save or Die on why the d20 won over uh, uh, on the chainmail combat system and i was like because it's just fun people like 20 sided dice they roll really well too <laughs> they just keep rolling the six siders they never go as far yeah the d4 is the least fun to roll <laughs> it just plops <laughs> down <laughs> Tell you something, brother. The Saber Die Podcast Immortal Edition is a production of Wild Games Productions, brother. It is produced for entertainment purposes only, Jack. All other uses are prohibited, dude. So be sure to visit them at saberdie.info for more information, brother. What you gonna do when the Saber Die Podcast runs wild on you? Ooh.